This is The Global Gambit. In The Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Curzon, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists and policymakers. Seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us and question and critically analyse these matters. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of The Global Gambit. As usual, it's Piotr speaking, and this time around, we're coming from Twitter Spaces to discuss the Ethiopian civil war. Now, the term for this conflict is is, is debated in itself. Some people call it Ethiopian civil war. Some people call it the Tigrayan war. Some people call it the Ethiopian Tigrayan civil war. There's many different terminology depending upon which perspective uh, and stance you're coming from. Needless to say, the conflict, the war has been ongoing for effectively two years at this point with a fragile ceasefire or more acute, accurately, perhaps a stalemate having been the prevailing uh, status uh, for the hostilities in the past five or six months. On the 24th of August uh, this year, that situation was greatly changed uh, when there were clashes between Ethiopia and the northern Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, uh, which erupted around Kobol, a border town in the Amharan region to the just south of Tigray. Fighting has since spread across quite a few different fronts, quite deep into Amhara as well. As the conflict has gone on, this conflict has gone not just into the Tigrayan province, but also Amhara and even parts of Afar that have been drone strike. Both sides have claimed that the other was the first to shoot in what has been the most intense renewed set, set of fighting since the war first broke out back in November of 2020, after what many saw was Abiy Ahmed, the prime minister, launching uh, an offensive to quell the perspectives of the TPLF and the Tagaru people. The situation is important more broadly because of the impact it has on the regional stability of the Horn of Africa. Ethiopia is the home of the African Union, the continent's multilateral uh, representation uh, in Addis Ababa. But unfortunately, Ethiopia, which has a population of 110 million or so, has been in a very fragile situation and uh, has been a very um, unwelcoming uh, development given the uh, situation to its east in Somalia with the terrorist group al-Shabaab and to its west with this coup that happened last year with the Sovereign Council of Sudan. Then that's not to mention the situation with the Nile and the Great Renaissance Dam, which greatly affects Sudan and Egypt as well. There's also been foreign intervention from countries like Turkey, UAE and others, meaning that this is not just a, a simple civil war within the borders. It's not purely an interstate war, but arguably an interstate one. These sorts of uh, themes and more are things that I'm going to be exploring with my guest today, William uh, William Davidson. William is a member of Crisis Group, one of the, uh, I think, prominent conflict resolution organisations. And uh, uh, Will has been the senior analyst for Ethiopia for a while, working on this uh, situation almost exclusively and having been in the region for a long time, tweeting and following the events as best as one can do. Well, I'm very glad for you to be joining us today. Appreciate your time. Um, How are you doing? Yeah, doing good. Thank you. Um, Looking forward to the discussion and, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I think to kick off straight away, as I say, the first part of this conflict really began almost two years ago. But in the past few months, we've seen a sort of, should we say, a subdued amount of activity on the battlefield. But since the late part of the summer, 
early September, that's that's reignited. I was wondering if you could take us through some of those most recent developments uh, for the people who haven't perhaps been as avidly following it. Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, I try not to um, you know, to go over the, the essential context that, that you've given, but indeed, um, you know, over the last month or so, there's been essentially a full scale resumption of this conflict. That that's a conflict which essentially pits uh, the Tigray regional forces um, against the Ethiopian federal military, but also its allies, notably Eritrea's military um, from the country just to the north of Ethiopia and Tigray. And then the other notable Ethiopian force is Amhara regional formal forces, security forces and, and militia from Amhara region. So it's the Tigray regional forces against that against that coalition. Now, this situation has pretty much dropped off the international radar, I would say, this year. Obviously, a lot of focus on, on Russia-Ukraine, but also because, as you mentioned, there has been a, a, a massive, well, a, you know, a significant drop in, in, in the violence um, for most of, of this year, particularly in terms of engagements between you know, the Ethiopian federal military um, and the Tigray regional forces. Um, and that was formalized to some extent by a, a, a truce, a truce that was labeled as a humanitarian truce in, in March. But, but really, the, the lull in the fighting began uh, between the, you know, the federal military and, and, the, and the Tigray forces began essentially at the beginning of the year. Um, and that followed a sequence of events when, if in November 2020, the war broke out, the TPLF leadership was displaced from, from, from Mekele and the regional government. Then they fought back um, very strong armed resistance and, and pushed the federal military and the Eritrean military um, out of most of Tigray in the middle of last year. But then the Tigray leadership, because they still um, found the region um, very significantly blockaded, um, so huge restrictions on transport to Tigray. Um, the federal authorities cutting basic services to Tigray in the middle of last year and a very restricted supply of, of aid and, and everything you need for a humanitarian operation and the normal functioning of, a, of an economy such as fuel um, also denied. Um, so in that period after the, the TPLF leadership essentially took back regional government power, shortly after that they they launched uh, their own offensive, and that ended up being primarily south to Amhara region. And you know, it, on its own terms, from a military perspective, it was quite a successful um, offensive. Uh, but in um, December of, of last year, um, it became quickly became very evident that the Tigray leadership was not able to achieve whatever they were trying to achieve, including possibly regime change in, in Addis, facing popular resistance, a lack of international and domestic support for their objectives, and quite a strong aerial campaign, including including drones. They retreated back to, to, to Tigray in, in December of last year. Um, there was some federal efforts to enter southern Tigray, uh, an, an area which Amhara region um, has designs on, um, as they have designs and have taken control of western Tigray, and we can talk about that. Um, but that was unsuccessful. But it was it was subsequent to that after the Tigrayan retreat and all this back and forth that we saw you know, a real lull in the fighting this year. Partly, presumably, um, the two military forces taking time to to, to recover and, and and replenish and, and strengthen. But they also seemed to at least try and approach um, and negotiated um, rather than sort of military solution to the conflict during that during that period this year. Um, and it was really the 
the end of that period where the parties at least nominally tried to find a negotiated solution through this truce um, talk of a, you know, an AU or an internationally mediated peace process um, discussions relating to the blockade, obviously with with Tigray's um, leaders and, and many of its people, quite understandably demanding the restoration of basic services and the reconnection of Tigray's economy to the national and international economy um, was prominent in the discussions, and, and it was partly the failure um, to do that in, in a significant way. Uh, we saw some increase in aid deliveries, but not anything like a, a, a full and complete lifting of the blockade. It was the acrimony that developed over that that was the that really triggered this this latest outbreak of of the war. Um, although we can we can say that also it was all the unresolved disagreements and the bad political blood um, that has built up, which we can also see as as as, as you know, continuing to cause the conflict. Um, and just to just to just to finish, um, what we've seen in, in the last month um, has been, you know, absolutely brutal by all accounts. Um, as you mentioned, the fighting quickly spread. Um, Eritrea's military has re-entered the conflict in a very significant way, particularly into the northwest of, of Tigray. Generally, that northwestern area, and in the recent couple of weeks, has been where the fighting has been most concentrated. But we've also seen major confrontations in that area around Kobo in northern Amhara, um, southern Tigray, um, as well as um, other other areas on the Amhara-Tigray border. Um, and some very strong claims from, from Tigray's government um, that Eritrea also t- tried to attack from, from the east through Afar. Um, so this is very much an ongoing situation. Uh, we saw an announcement from the Tigray military leadership. They were withdrawing from that that front where the fighting first broke out on the 24th of August, presumably because they are in, you know, in some ways stretched, um, you know, fighting multiple um, fronts, um, so presumably looking to reinforce one of the other areas, although, of course, we can't be, be clear. But essentially, the fighting is, is ongoing. Um, international efforts to get the parties to recommit to a truce and, and get... Humanitarian services, which have again been suspended, restarted, so far have come to nothing. I've become aware today that the African Union has formally invited the parties uh, to talks, but has yet to see whether that will materialise and, 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 of course, yet to see, even if the talks do materialise, whether they will achieve um, any sustained stopping of the fighting, let alone any sort of political settlement. And I think it's worth pointing out, perhaps finally, that even if we were to see a breakthrough, um, in the um, efforts to, to convene the parties, formal international mediated talks, that does not necessarily have any impact on President Desire of Eritrea's calculations. Um, I think our understanding is the same as the common uh, perception, which is that really President Desire and his and his um, allies are set on the complete destruction um, of the TPLF as a political entity, and they're willing to cause all sorts of damage to Tigray and its people as they have already done uh, to achieve those that to achieve that goal um, and with Eritrea's recent re-entry to the conflict um, that still um, would, be, would be a major outstanding concern even if the peace talks did get going. No absolutely thank you for that um, you've touched upon a lot of the themes that I want to cover 
um, notably sort of, you know, a post-conflict sort of scenario, foreign intervention, the UN, these are sort of themes I want to explore with you. So uh, I think maybe if we if we follow down this um, impact of Eritrea, this was one of the uh, the questions under this sort of umbrella of a few sort of foreign elements in the war. From what I understand, you know, uh, the AU has attempted to lead mediation, supported by the United States and the EU, but that's been frankly dismal. Uh, prelim- preliminary talks, I think, in June were agreed to to restore basic services from the federal government, like telecoms and banking. But Western diplomats, as far as I can tell, have been heavily distracted by Ukraine uh, and have therefore had little pressure on uh, Prime Minister Abiy to, to keep his word. Uh, there's also something that despite his notional commitment, so to speak, to talks in private, from what I understand, Ethiopian officials say there can be no de- deal, as you mentioned before, because they basically consider them a terrorist group. Could you unpack a little bit more the dynamics of specifically the Ethiopian federal government's relationship to the P- TPLF a bit more? And then if you could bring in maybe the Eritrean context as well, because given it was Prime Minister Abiy who helped establish that peace agreement um, that gave him the the, P, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize before this whole thing um, developed. I, I think that little bit of breakdown would be useful for our, for our listeners. So, I mean, if we just start with the situation as it is now and has it been throughout the war, um, you know, I think this is most you know, usefully described as a, obviously it has an international and um, element with the involvement of Veritrae's government and, and military, but the sort of proximate cause for the conflict um, is a complete breakdown um, in the sort of constitutional and administrative relationship between the federal government and Tigray's government. Obviously, well, the, the, the TPLF is the ruling party of of Tigray's government. Now, I don't know to what extent you want to get stuck into the background there. But this um, conflict broke out in 2020, sort of two years into an increasingly um, violent and destabilizing transition um, after Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed took power in 2018. And I mean, suffice to say that uh, the TPLF was a previously fairly powerful actor at the federal level, and it lost considerable amounts of of power during the transition. I don't. You know, I, I, maybe you could sort of zero in on some aspects you want to talk about, but I don't think it doesn't seem to make sense to get too much into that background. But you know, there was very much a um, an incredibly an incredibly bitter political you know, power struggle, also with important um, ideological elements relating to um, maybe the sort of balance of power. Um, between the, the federal government and, and regional governments and issues of autonomy and self-determination, um, you know, which are very much you know, run through Ethiopia's um, contemporary political history and challenges. But in 2020, the situation was that um, you know, there was a major constitutional argument between the federal and Tigray government. Um, that was over t- whether Tigray had the right to run a regional election after the federal government tried to suspend all elections due to the pandemic. And you know, that, that sort of supercharged the political dispute, led to a very significant military buildup on the Eritrean side um, of clearly um, a, a military alliance between the Ethiopian and Eritrean government. Um, I mean, to my understanding, you know, Tigray's leadership will, will also realised strongly that war was a possibility and, and made some preparations for it. And that was the, the sort of sort of a, a political fallout followed by a constitutional argument took them into war. 
Um, and then everything that has happened during the war has made the political disputes that much worse. And we've added new elements to them to make it an even more thorny problem um, to tackle. So, for example, um, in, in, you know, in the first few months of the war, we had Amhara region, Amhara political elements essentially take over very violently in what has been described by international rights groups as, as a process of ethnic cleansing. Um, an area of Western Tigray, they said, was historical Amhara land. So this is a problem that's developed essentially since the war. Um, and then, of course, we have Eritrea's involvement. Now, again, without getting into the, the political background, um, your former pretty sort of rivalrous allies, I guess you could say, you know, Isaias and his his allies back in the 80s and 90s with regards to the TPLF, they had a very bitter falling out in the 1990s. Um, culminating in the 1998 war between Ethiopia and Eritrea, um, and then relations have just been as bad as as, as they could be ever since then. Um, it seems now, in retrospect, that the um, peace deal, primarily between Abiy and Isaias, um, was was partly an agreement um, to ensure that the, you know, the TPLF would never be a, a political force to be reckoned with um, ever ever again. Um, and so there's a strong suspicion from Tigrayans, many Tigrayans and, and others, that you know, Isaias' um, role in this conflict since 2020, including now, um, is you know, was essentially planned. And the Eritrean role in the war, including you know, a series of atrocities, not just this deprivation of basic services and commodities, but also the you know, uh, massacres, uh, systemic sexual violence, looting, um, has obviously you know, further poisoned the relations between Tigray's leadership and Eritrea's. There have been atrocities committed, uh, according to the findings of international rights groups, by all sides. Um, so I think that the point I'm making here is that there was this very serious political and, and constitutional ideological dispute that led to the war, and then everything has got significantly worse during the war, um, leaving us with the predicament we have now. Yeah, the um, as, as far as I can tell from my limited understanding relative to yours, you know, it started off as the Tigrayan uh, conflict, but it has since spilled over into other areas. I remember reading an article in uh, The Guardian earlier this month talking about, you know, uh, that over 200 Amharan people were killed in an attack that has been blamed on rebels, whilst very much I see on social media and in other circles the, uh, the Tigrayan um, uh, communities' efforts to to bring to light what's going on within their province as well. Uh, so yeah, so much seems to be happening across <clears throat> the board in in different yeah, levels. Yes, yeah, so we have to be a bit careful here. So I, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to here, but uh, there has been several uh, massacres of Amhara civilians in Oromia region, mm-hmm. um, and then when the um, when the Tigray forces went on the offensive um, last year. Um, it, you know, it it seems evident that they also committed atrocities both in Amhara and and Afar because the issue here is you know on the one hand we have the federal government and its allies including Eritrea's government with this um, systematic um, sort of institutionalized restrictions and, and deprivation of of basic services and and commodities. De facto blockade, and we can look at the report of the experts appointed by the Human Rights Council who said that they had um, you know, reasonable grounds to conclude that the federal government and its allies, including Eritrea, had denied Tigrayans these basic mm-hmm. services. 
And then, so, th- so that is, you know, a, a sort of in some ways, a sort of qualitatively different type of international crime. And then I think we're into understanding how systematic has been the sexual violence and the killing and the looting. Um, and those, and then we would have to sort of break down and assess all of those. I think the understanding for people who followed this closely is that whilst there have undoubtedly been very serious incidents um, of international crimes, war crimes committed by the Tigray forces, um, there isn't anything um, that looks anything, anything like as systematic as what has occurred against Tigrayan civilians. And that's whether in you know, what has been described as ethnic cleansing, primarily by Amhara elements in Western Tigray, or, or what happened during the initial entry into Tigray, uh, occupation of Tigray by the federal military and the and the Eritrean military. So obviously this is hugely sensitive stuff. We don't want to downplay or belittle um, any of these these shocking atrocities or, or any of the suffering. Um, but we also have to try and make make an assessment of, 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 you know, about the, the scale and the, the degree of the um, the offences the being committed here. Happening? No, absolutely. I think it's. Of all the things I followed in in my um, in my time, this is one of the most uh, sensitive and, and difficult because there are legitimate um, things on both sides. But it, for me, and I think a large proportion of um, the international community, there is one side that is more offensive in this. Um, for me, I mean, and this brings me to sort of from people I've engaged with on um, both sides, but particularly the Tigrayan side, they look for, you know, some kind of support, right? They want the, the greater desire from, say, the uh, Western nations to do something to to prevent the um, uh, the continued targeting. But um, what I understand is that the federal government has been able to gather, you know, drones and other sort of uh, pieces of equipment apparatus from countries like Turkey or the United Arab Emirates to to uh, to conduct sort of uh, airstrikes, something that the TPLF or the, the 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 rebel side, if you want to put it like that, don't have. So I was wondering if you could break down a little bit more the sort of foreign intervention or interference, depending upon how you look at it, um, on the on the side of the federal government, but also perhaps the the, the TPLF. I think the yeah probably the most significant. Um, so we, so we, you know, we probably have by far the most sort of column inches written um, about the sort of diplomatic efforts that are made by the African Union, particularly by the US State Department and its envoys, the European Union. Uh, but probably by far the most decisive um, foreign interventions are the ones, some of the ones that you name check there. And so that's the provision of, of drones uh, to the foreign, uh, to the federal government, uh, particularly the the Bayraktar Turkish drones were very significant, it said, um, in, in, in forcing the uh, Tigrayan forces to retreat in December last year um, with their supply lines getting hit. Um, and then also at the outbreak of the war in November 2020, it seems that the overwhelming force that resulted in um, the, T- the TPLF having to give up regional government power very quickly. And, and I think we should note that the TPLF is the ruling party um, of, of Tigray, but it is the Tigray regional government that was in dispute with the federal government. Um, and it is the Tigray Defence Forces, as they're called, which is a an, you know, an arm of the, of the regional government rather than of the TPLF, which is classified as a, a terrorist organisation by the federal government. 
Um, but I think it was the it was the UAE's assistance in, in providing drones to the federal military that was was very significant in enforcing the TPLF government from power to abandon Mechale and essentially begin an insurgency quickly into the into the war. And then, of course, in terms of foreign intervention, what could be more impactful um, than that of President Isaias and, and Eritrea's um, with their uh, full scale. Um, support, um, you know, infantry, mechanized divisions, artillery, um, etc. Um, at during various phases of the war and and, and continued occupation of of parts of of Digray, uh, particularly in a critical area in in the northwest. Um, so those have been the most um, decisive foreign interventions. Um, you, we, we might want to discuss um, other um, issues which are. You know, perhaps harder to be authoritative about um, the, the, the degree of support from Sudan or, or maybe for Egypt um, for uh, the Tigray and its, its government and forces is much oh. discussed, but but hard hard to prove. And then may, maybe just you know, some, something else to, to note is that we do seem to have, you know, as, as far as as far as we can tell, at crisis group, we do seem to have a sort of reduced level of enthusiasm. Um, for supporting this phase of the war um, from actors like, for example, the Turkish government or the government in Abu Dhabi. Um, we should also note it's difficult to know what's going on with the sort of covert operations and, and military assistance. Um, but that does seem to be a potential factor here. Um, in terms of the in terms of the, the Tigray's government, I think there's this strong perception and allegation in, in Addis Ababa that uh, the US and, and allies are supporting uh, Tigray's government and the TPLF. I don't think that's how people in DC and Brussels see it. Um, they've taken a, a fairly consistent stance from the beginning of the war that um, there the, the must be unfettered humanitarian access. Now that's something which the um, the, the, the TPLF government and its leadership also demands, but I don't think that the US and its uh, like-minded allies are demanding unfettered access because the TPLF has asked for it. It's because it's a matter of international humanitarian law and a basic human right. They've also called for cessations of hostilities and ceasefires and political negotiations, but it's also what we call for a crisis group that is perceived and has been perceived as support for the TPLF, but it's nothing of the sort. It's just to try and ensure that civilian suffering is minimised and that the parties try and find a political way out of this rather than continue with the military conflict. So I think those are yeah, probably the, the, you know, the, the, the main elements that, that, that spring to mind, but you know, do feel free to inquire more. No, I, it's, I mean, as I say, there's so much to unpack here. I'm trying to do a good job of covering some of it for people who have either not really paid any attention at all or have completely forgotten about the conflict, which is disastrous to think. But some people have become so focused on Ukraine. And I think it shows you the um, the inner inequality that exists in terms of the media coverage that was given to Ukraine in the global north. Um, and the racial aspect, which I'm not going to get into too much, but there was some, certainly something that I saw many people feeling there was an element to sort of the disproportionate coverage Ukraine got versus uh, Ethiopia. Um, yes, I think that's, if I just jump in on that, because that's something I, I haven't mentioned. So, yeah, I mean, so Ethiopia suffers many problems, as we've sort of briefly alluded to. I think there's you know, 30 million out of 110 or something Ethiopians in need of assistance at the moment. Um, there's an insurg you know, insurgency, counterinsurgency in the largest region, Oromia, um, causing you know, many deaths and civilian suffering. 
But in Tigray and the surrounding areas, um, we, we believe that there's at least tens of thousands of combatants who've died in the last month of fighting. Mm-hmm. So these are just astronomical numbers. And then we add to that the fact that this blockade we've been talking about, so it's the denial of banking services, denial of telecommunications services, denial of electricity, uh, no commercial trading activity to speak of, and this massively restricted humanitarian operation, which obviously becomes incredibly necessary in a situation where normal economic activity is needed. It's also a heavily agricultural area. Um, and because of the conflict and the looting, the destru- destruction of agricultural equipment, the lack of seeds, fertilizers, water, you name it, and fuel, um, the agricultural economy has has suffered hugely in, in Tigray. Like I say, that's ma- you know, massively dominant in the region still. So quite on top of all the carnage being caused on the battlefield and all the you know, mostly you know, the, well, the young men and, and women who are dying in their in their droves, we also have the this incredible suffering of a region of something like um, six or seven million people. Um, and then, of course, as the, after the Tigray forces you know, went on the counteroffensive in July last year, we've also had mass displacement um, in areas of, of Amhara and Afar, uh, areas which, you know, like many places in Tigray, were also people who existed um, in, quite, in quite, quite a precarious situations. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the level of human suffering here clearly, um, you know, if the media coverage and international t- attention was proportionate, then we, we would barely be hearing about anything else on our um, you know, media channels. But, but of course, the reality is completely different. No, 100%. Um, I want to jump to uh, the UN specifically, right? Because uh, when I was with Crisis Group, I was working in the UN team with Richard and Ashish. Uh, and, you know, I quickly was put on to covering the statements given by the Security Council in light of the war when it broke out properly in, in November of 2020. And the thing that I quickly became really rather frustrated with, other than the limitations of what the UN can do because of its current construction, we can talk about UN reformation in another podcast episode, perhaps, is... Um, uh, is, is, is the um, inability for them to do their job. As I said before, the UN themselves stated that they felt there was a de facto blockade around Tigray. And the thing that I want to bring in specifically as an example, which made me very disconcerted, was the expulsion of seven uh, United Nations uh, representatives in around about this time last year, October 5th, 6th. Um, and that led to a very, very um, intense and um, unusual uh, uh, Security Council meeting uh, with the uh, Ethiopian delegation basically stating, you know, show us proof, which led to the, I think, one of the very few occasions where the Secretary General, in this case, Antonio Guterres, asked for a right of reply to to push back on what the um, Ethiopian delegation had stated. Now, um, people in the uh, Ethiopian communities have stated that they want a you know, fly zone, that they want there to be sanctions. Unfortunately, again, due to the way that the UN is constructed, countries like Russia and China don't agree with intervention because they see it as a, quote, you know, internal or sovereign matter, whilst the West feels that, you know, I think shows more of a sympathetic view to the position of the Degrayan uh, uh, cause. So we, we were at this stalemate at the multilateral level. But I was wondering, from your perspective, what do you think? What's your take on the UN? What's your take a little bit more on, on the AU? The UN surely is best place to do things like mediate, data collect, be a source of uh, accountability. Um, but it's not being able to function even in that capacity. So I was wondering if you could um, share your, your perspectives on that. I, sp- I suppose it's best just to be sort of brief and 
and and blunt about it, right? I mean, I think when you're in operating in a um, you know a, a, a state like Ethiopia and probably most states, in reality, they don't really end up doing very much without the blessing of the government of of the day. And we also know that the UN. Although you know, obviously it does you know, fantastic work in terms of um, humanitarian operations and, and and all sorts of things, ultimately the UN is is a political entity with its actions mediated by its member states and the balance of power um, between them and their various interests. Now, I think when you put those two things together, often you have um, a, a recipe for um, inaction in the face of a situation which is essentially designed for the UN's intervention. So there is an obvious need for uh, life-saving operations in Ethiopia, um, and there is a huge you know, peace and security problem um, which needs resolving by some third party. But um, until you get the balance of power right and the powerful actors in the world um, decide to either come together or, or make a um, you know a strong play and, and take you know sort of not unilateral action but push through some action and are able to do so without it being vetoed by other powerful members um, or um, you know if, if the UN is is somehow able to to do its work without needing the permission of the of the federal government, then we have a problem. And that's, of course, the situation we have in, in Ethiopia. The, the UN and its agencies um, are able to do you know, this, this sort of um, commendable work that that, that that you referred to in Ethiopia as much as the, the government is um, lets them to do so. And, and that's where the expulsion comes in. And, and, when, and, and you know, a state like Ethiopia or any other state, when they want to take action, um, to essentially discipline international actors who are operating in the country, whether they're diplomats, whether they're from governments, whether they're for the UN, whether they're journalists, whether they're humanitarian workers, a state, a nation state and its government can do so. Um, and that's what Ethiopia has done very effectively um, for many years and, and, is, and is still doing. Um, when it comes to the international level, um, as you stated, there is no appetite um, from your powerful members of the Security Council, like uh, your Russia and China, for a sort of interventionist approach. Yes, uh, people in the US government uh, realize that more needs to be done, um, but they're not able to get the support um, of the UN Security Council for any more forceful action. And indeed, um, yeah, the, the, the diplomacy of Ethiopia's government and its allies has essentially prevented any substantive discussion um, of the, um, the situation in, in, in and around Tigray. Um, so let alone forceful action, we don't even have really serious consideration of the issue. Um, so what we see um, is the result of the deficiencies um, of, of the international system. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't want to sound you know, completely defeatist. Um, obviously, more can be done. This is all political, um, if there is political will shown by the various parties, um, whether the Ethiopian parties or Eritrea's government or regional actors or the powerful international actors, then obviously a different approach um, could emerge from that. Um, but we certainly you know, haven't seen that so far.
Um, and maybe just a, you know, a quick word on, on the African Union. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the African Union has, has built up its capacities um, to, um, to, to mediate and to, to assess and, 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 you know, peace and security problems in Africa and, and you know, it's conducted peacekeeping operations. Um, but again, um, you, you know, it, it is a collection of member states uh, and it's only when those member states have the political will uh, to do anything about a problem that anything's going to happen. And, and I would suggest in this instance, really, the African Union has been more a tool of the federal government to deflect and absorb international attention um, than the African Union um, and its organs has really been a tool um, to do anything about resolving um, the conflict um, in, in Ethiopia. Yeah, I no, I, I appreciate your perspective. I know you're not, you know, UN explicit. I would try and get Richard for that. But, you know, I just I, I like to challenge this point because for me, just purely as a independent passive observer, I find it very disconcerting that those people and the, the point here that I don't think has been emphasized enough is they weren't political officers. They weren't security officers. They were humanitarian officers, simply people there to focus on the humanitarian fallout of the entire thing. So uh, very deliberately, people selected to be removed so they can't even keep uh, track of what's going on. So for me, I just uh, the UN is flawed. We can all talk about the the massive modernization that it needs to go through. But that's not the purpose of this discussion. As I say, I appreciate that, the you know, the balancing line you're trying to take because it's uh, it, it's, you know, incredibly uh, com- uh, complicated. Um, I just think, it, you know, for me personally, having followed this as best as I can in a personal capacity, it's, it's very frustrating. But to broaden out a little bit to to my second uh, penultimate question is the geopolitical implications of this. You know, we, we saw in recent months um, some Al-Shabaab uh, attacks. Somalia remains a very, very, you know, well, fa- frankly, failing state. Uh, Sudan had its coup the past year, as I mentioned at the beginning. Um, I think it's still, what, 60, 65,000 people are displaced within its borders. Uh, Egypt is also affected by the Great Renaissance Dam and the downstream uh, of that on on the Nile, which I think what ninety percent of Ethiopia uh, Egypt's population rely on, or in some form. Um, could you take us through a little bit of what this war has done for the for the regional geopolitical stability, um, and 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 sort of what you think uh, it, it, the, the situation is going to be in the next few months? Or I appreciate if you don't want to forecast too much. Obviously, the the, the trajectory is 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 very worrying. Um, and we can say in general terms that um, you know, Ethiopia has been relatively stable um, and has been you know, more a source of, of stability, um, at least in terms of you know, peacekeeping operations and, and that type of thing, than a source of instability. But that's something which has, has switched around. You see, we see you know, far less activity from the regional security bloc, EGAD. Um, that's partly due to the emergence of the re-emergence of President Isaias, who um, sort of wants nothing to do with with that in with that multilateral institution. And you know, we also have these um or you know, clearly we have unstable situations in in in, in, in Ethiopia's neighbours. What the future will hold obviously depends very much um, upon the course of the conflict. If this sort of, you know, if if we see a sort of trajectory of sort of ever continuing escalation, um, you know, clearly that has the massive potential to destabilize Eritrea, partly because it's just sort of impossible to um, imagine the sort of coexistence um, of a sort of really sort of um, an assertive Tigray regional 
Tigray region as, a, as any sort of political entity coexisting with um, President Isaias' Eritrea. As we've seen last year, um, the conflict has you know, massive potential to de- destabilize Ethiopia at, at the center. Um, the center remains relatively firm at the, at the moment, but we have seen you know, mushrooming conflicts in, in Ethiopia. Um, whether that is something which the central government can contain with, without a, a sort of overall threat to state stability, well, that's something it's managed to do so far, but we don't know um, how long it will be able to do that, especially if the economic problems um, continue to, to grow. Um, I guess the big wild card, as it's been sort of throughout the, the conflict, is 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 Sudan. Um, we, we, we know about Sudan's uh, difficult political situation. Relations between Sudan and, and Ethiopia have really deteriorated over the last few years, partly due to that Nile uh, waters and you know, Ethiopia's hydropower dam, that, that dispute you, you mentioned. It seems at the moment, um, perhaps, that the, the two governments, despite their inability to improve their relations, they're sort of ensuring that they that they don't sort of explode into anything too disastrous. Um, but if we saw uh, the Tigray conflict moving to the West, um, where Tigray's government um, and its forces are looking to take back control of, of Western Tigray, which is occupied by Eritrean troops, where Amhara region has taken and, and claimed as its own, forcefully taken a large chunk of Tigray. That is also adjacent to an area of, of, of a border area that's disputed by Sudan and Ethiopia. And there is undoubtedly the potential um, you know, for a major uh, regionalization of the conflict in, in that direction as well. In terms of the you know, the, the, the Egypt's uh, position here, um, and also the broader uh, dynamics, um, it looks rather it's, it's something of a stalemate um, at the moment. Um, no, no one is really able to break the, the deadlock between Egypt and Ethiopia. Thankfully, you know, we haven't seen any serious water shortages downstream. Um, during this uh, sort of filling period of the last three years, but also we, we have, and so we have, we haven't seen any sort of um, major increase in, in hostilities there. But uh, whilst there is no sort of resolution to that major political dispute, of course, there's always the, the concerns about um, increasing proxy conflict and and, and wider de- destabilization, which only becomes more likely you know, if if we have uh, you know, a serious level of internal. Um, instability in Ethiopia um, and also in in, in the other countries. Um, mm. So at the moment, you know, things are just about contained overall at a national level. Obviously, they're completely disastrous um, you know, in in Tigray. But um, you know, if that continues and and the, and the war, war worsens, then we could well see you know, all sorts of wider problems. Stem yeah, from. I was I was going to say it's sort of an interstate war, but given the uh, very overt role of the Eritrea, it is really an interstate war at this point. Um, just to, uh, the other thing that I, I think I would like to take note of is, you know, Sudan has its continued instabilities with the four in the far west. Um, and also the, the, the real interesting thing, which I only learned 
in the past year was that, you know, uh, Abiyé, which is one of these settlements areas of South Sudan and Sudan, is the entire peacekeeping mission, as far as I'm aware, is made up of Ethiopian soldiers, which is obviously a bit of a difficult position to be in for their broader, you know, regional stability if then sort of were there to be escalations or tensions really growing between Sudan and Ethiopia like that. So there's a lot at play here, uh, not just within the country, but across the whole. The last question I want to ask you is about Article 39, because in the time that I spent in uh, in Addis Ababa, only for a few days, uh, a few years ago, you know, I quickly learned that there was a lot of chatter about great autonomy, you've mentioned self-determination, these sorts of themes, right? And, and I just wanted to ask you a bit more of a hypothetical, right? Um, in the sense of what is a medium, what is a scenario which would be possibly acceptable, a compromise that was reasonable for everybody? Because, you know, clearly there are many uh, Tagaru people who want complete and utter independence. They want to be able to determine for themselves how they govern, how they live um, and so on. But there are many people on the other side who don't want to see the dissolution of Ethiopia because it could lead to a domino effect. The um, the uh, Tigray province leaves, then you maybe see others wanting to leave or other countries surrounding sort of with a strong you know, interest in one of the other provinces, maybe trying to snap it up or something like that. So there's a there's there's, there's camps on both sides. So. What about the idea of a sort of greater devolution of powers uh, to to the provinces? A bit sort of, you know, uh, people have made the comparisons to Catalonia and Spain or Greenland and Ireland in that Tigray has control over various aspects of specific policies, but then um, something like foreign policy or something the, the federal government in Addis Ababa retains. Is this even possible or, or is it a complete pipe dream and we, we should expect for there to be a complete separation or not? Like, I'm curious what your what your thoughts are, and I appreciate it. It's a difficult question. Yeah, so, so first first of all, you know, as, as Ethiopia is currently constituted, Tigray's the degree of autonomy of Tigray or, or any similar administrative area in Ethiopia is a matter of self-determination. Um, that's what the constitution says. So it's it's up to the people to decide. I think you know, from from our, our perspective at a crisis group, obviously we have to deal with with political realities as 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 they exist or as we we see them. So. For example, regardless of the level of devolution of of powers, the type of thing you talk about, we have a territorial um, issue at the moment. Now, people, um, this is understandably a very sensitive issue, but but essentially, um, you're in an area of that was administered by Tigray region throughout the federal era. Um, generally known as, as Western Tigray in the formal naming of it. And so that um, is currently um, controlled and administered um, by Amhara region. So it doesn't matter um, what the relations are between or the, the balance of the division of, of powers between the, the federal and the regional government. It doesn't matter in terms of resolving that issue. Um, at the moment, it's essentially a zero-sum competition. Um, the Tigray's government just simply says that there must be a return uh, to the pre-war um, situation, um, as that was an unconstitutional annexation. And that seems to be a, a position with a lot of uh, weight to it, uh, but it's essentially rejected uh, by you know, large portions of the Amhara 
political uh, classes and, and more broadly. And so until you resolve that sort of uh, issue, then it doesn't really matter what the constitutional arrangements are, um, because it's, it's a political and territorial dispute. I would also just reiterate the point I made that it's very hard to imagine a strong Tigray, whether it's a, a region within a federation or confederation or independent nation state coexisting within a Zayas-led Eritrea. So it doesn't matter, again, what the constitutional arrangements are in Ethiopia, and you've still got that outstanding problem. The other element is uh, much more subjective, I would say. I mean, there is something of a sort of perennial political discussion in Ethiopia about you know, what should be the role of, of ethnicity um, in, 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 in politics and in administrative structures and in the federal system. Um, that's a major point of contention between different Ethiopian political camps. Um, and there's a, you know, a, a linked discussion about that balance of power between the federal and, and regional governments that you refer to. Of course, there's many different ways. Um, there's many different types of federalism and, and ways of dividing powers and revenue and resources and different electoral systems and all the rest of it. Um, and and it's not at all outside the bounds of possibilities that you know, Ethiopians can come up with, with something which they can agree on more than they do on the current system. But the problem is, um, one of the problems is we've had a complete breakdown um, of normal politics, whether federal or, or otherwise, um, and politics is just simply being played out through a violence um, and, and a power struggle. Um, so yes, the types of um, sort of formulations that you refer to might play um, some role in the in the future with creating um, a sustainable peace, um, but there's um, you know a, a lot of obstacles in the way of, of getting there. No, hundred percent. I, I think the thing that we can all agree on is that we want peace um, and a stability with the region, so that there can be you know. Uh, for 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 this to the the, the chaos and destruction to well, to cease, you know, we do we do want we do want peace, but the, the problem is that people want peace on on their own very terms. different terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, no. That's that's what I'm saying. It's that's why I ask about this sort of compromised scenario, you know, because it's sort of like trying to ideally reach a consensus that will satisfy people, but perhaps yeah, what's the expression? you know, will satisfy, but people will be satisfied, you know, compromise doesn't anybody happen, whatever the expression is. But just to the Eritrean point, I mean, you know, Zayas is someone, I think that will remain a problem, Eritrean being one of the only few countries to continually vote on the side of Russia, despite its um, invasion of Ukraine. So I think there'll be a, a, a predominant fly in the ointment as long as he remains president. Um, but now I want to open it up to some voices uh, from um, uh, the different sides of this debate um, so that we can hear some, some, you know, some, some contrasting opinions. And Ashketch, um, I'd like to come to you first. Uh, please state your question and uh, comment. Thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you for uh, taking up even uh, the question of Ethiopia, the empire. But uh, I was wondering why you didn't add Oromo nations uh, the Oromo War, because there is a war in Oromia, and uh, at this moment there is, you know, underage people from southern part of uh, Oromia at this moment in uh, uh, are just uh, taking them up into the into the, you know, into buses and they are taking them to 
war and but uh, yeah i would have liked to see you that you had even oromo and oromo's struggle here uh, because i think i have been followed you uh, when it comes to ukraine and i know i feel their burden uh, but it's good that you came now and you, you just started i hope the next time it will be also about oromo nation who is under uh, the empire since 150 years ago who is fighting today against the uh, fascist army actually in any of oromo he is sitting there but uh, uh, i hope you'll check how the horrible things are going on burning of homes burning of food burning of uh, burning of uh, uh, you know uh, crops in the field and even those which are uh, harvested and now uh, almost as uh, everybody you know as the nhcr have uh, described even others described there is almost about 10 or 20 million people are going to be starved and now in oromia people are dying from starvation but no one no uh, single international uh, helping organization is functioning there and uh, the uh, the people's army ola have requested uh, for uh, opening up a gate for to help our people but no one listened to and i just want you just to remind you and i follow you always and uh, you have a good a very good discussion uh, the feelings that we feel about ukraine because i am living also uh, just near to ukraine i am living in sweden and i know i have been uh, i know how ukrainian people are and i know how uh, putin is doing against uh, against uh, ukraine people and as you said already earlier about the ertrian uh, you know uh, dictator it's not only in tigray but the ertrian forces are also in oromia even it started in oromia uh, so i hope this will be lifted up too thank you thank you very much for your for your important observation um i agree um you know we need to include that as well i was aware of the role the ola had in in the or has had um but well do you do you want to add anything to to what was just shared um no i mean i think that um, the the, you know, the 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 problem is that um yes we as we mentioned in our discussion uh, ethiopia and the the conflict in tigray is that doesn't get sufficient international attention um and then the next serious most serious conflict uh, according to my judgment is the you know, the the situation in oromia um that definitely doesn't get enough international attention and, and i think there's just an unfortunate dynamic when people do get around to considering you know, the, the horror that's occurring in ethiopia uh, they only have time to to focus on on the the the, the top story and and so just mm-hmm. consistently there's an an underreporting um of the situation in oromia which is which is indeed you know, incredibly serious um with just huge amounts of of, of civilian suffering as well No I, I appreciate that. Thank you for your share. Um I would like to come to I believe uh Mugabe. Um p- appreciate your perspective. 
uh, just a couple of comments, and probably I would also be grateful in terms of the input and uh, sort of uh, chipping in from other colleagues. I, uh, I'm just interested in the narratives uh, in relation to the nature of conflict. Uh, we do understand under international humanitarian law, we seem to categorically classify conflicts into international conflict or non-international conflict or internal, external uh, the current sort of playing forces and the dynamics within Ethiopia are raising questions whether, you know, how this could even be classified, uh, whether is it an international or an internal conflict. I, I'll probably be really, really insightful to sort of comment on the classification of the conflict. Uh, but at the same time, there may be questions of whether, you know, whenever there is an armed conflict, we do understand that still law remains a very key component in terms of what is being done. But also, most importantly, in terms of principles like maybe, uh, you know, distinguishing of uh, uh, civilians from civilian objects, civilian property, you know, and, and all these sort of legal frameworks. So it's probably quite pertinent to sort of map with precision and clarity, uh, you know, each instances where these sort of... Uh, uh, you know, valuations have happened and probably creating a room and a regime for accountability. So it is something which I would also be quite very keen and interested in terms of people who have been keenly, carefully, and of course, uh, attentively following events unfolding within uh, within Ethiopia. Uh, and, and on the other hand, there have been uh, some sort of voices talking about uh, issues of maybe uh, genocide, uh, which is a different concept altogether. So I would, I would be just interested to know whether there is an element or to what extent can this sort of argument or this sort of claim or uh, this sort of assertions or allegations can be justified, uh, you know, because an armed conflict can be on its own. But then when it, there is an element of genocide, then it takes a different turn altogether. So I'll be very grateful to know. Thank you very much for that uh, very constructive point. Um, Will, what, what are your thoughts on that? First of all, there's a, there's a, there's a difficulty um, in uh, investigation, observation, assessment and therefore categorization right um you know, one of the impacts of the blockade and, and generally the way the conflict is being conducted particularly i would say by the the, the federal government and the Eritrean government is just a huge restriction on the amount of physical access and also the amount of information um that's coming out from the battlefield so we we simply don't know enough. Uh, but of course, whether it's people like myself, who focuses on sort of political analysis, um, whether it's your journalists, whether it's human rights researchers, including the UN Human Rights Council experts, uh, people are trying to document as well as the, the, you know, the, the activists and, and, and civilians as, as well. People are trying to document and they're trying to get information out. They're trying to establish what the facts are. Um, suffice to say, there's a huge amount of contestation around that. I think you know, when it comes to that type of context I'm describing, um, and then we have, you know, if we take the sort of civilian combatant issue, uh, we have had um, you know, civilians who have taken up arms or very rapidly been pressed into service. And I think with the fairly you know, relatively limited amount of investigation that's gone on, it has been hard for people to you know, ascertain exactly who was a civilian or who was a, co a combatant according to international legal norms. So it's fraught with problems. People are doing their best. Um, obviously, the, the genocide question is, is an absolutely massive one. Um, it, there hasn't been any formal designation um, of genocide by a sort of internationally recognized relevant institution. That, of course, isn't to say 
um, that it isn't occurring. It's simply to say that myself and, and crisis group um, and, and others, you know, we, people haven't been able to make that assessment yet. Um, you know, clearly, uh, we've, we've seen assessments of you know this um, you know, de- deprivation of, of you know, basic basic services and, and, and vital commodities. Essentially, the, the blockade. We've we've seen all sorts of dehumanising speech. Um, including from pretty senior Ethiopian political and, and cultural leaders directed at Tigrayans. Uh, we've seen sort of mass detention, uh, people obviously being singled out on the basis of their ethnicity, um, just one of the many elements of, of collective punishment that, that's going on. So there's, there's no doubt, um, really, that, and, and, I, and I've mentioned already that Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have concluded after really by far the most exhaustive piece of research on on the expulsion of Tigrayans in the situation and the violence related to that in Western Tigray, they concluded that was um, you know, ethnic cleansing and, and, and therefore you know, crimes against humanity. So all sorts of terrible things have been documented. Um, yes, uh, certainly there's a, there's, a, there's a very clear understanding um, that this is genocide amongst uh, many Tigrayans, but I think because of the limitations um, of you know, accessing information on the ground and carrying out the sort of requisite you know, assessments, so that that isn't something that's been matched by relevant international institutions as yet. No, I, I agree. I, I think that, you know, for me, it comes back to the fact that there has been a large restriction at such a high level like the UN, um, which is which is really unsettling. And broadly speaking, just from my whatever two cents of what it's worth, you know, I think that this is reflective also of the need to modernise and update IHL or humanitarian law, law around conflict, because it doesn't account for uh, various forms of uh, atrocities that, that can happen. Ethnic cleansing isn't even included uh, in the Geneva Convention as, a, as, a, as an option. It's it's, uh, it's still only really an academic term that was created in the 1990s. Um, so that in itself, I think, is reflective of a, of a larger thing that needs to be. It's, it, you know, as I say, my goal here is to first and foremost just be a platform by which to raise this issue. Um, and I want to thank you for your time. Um, and for everyone for tuning in to this episode of The Global Gambit. I forgot to mention that this is part of a podcast. So, um, yeah, thank you very much, everyone, for joining. Um, and I hope to see you in the next episode of The Global Gambit. Uh, this has been a eye-opening episode, and I hope to um, host a future panel and groups on it to uh, deep uh, dive deeper into many areas of it uh, in future as well. But thank you very much for tuning in. Take care. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at The Global Gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time... This is The Global Gambit.